we've been looking at the Beatitudes, the beautiful ways of being in the world where Jesus is describing what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus to our internal and external heart. And I realized something about the Sermon on the Mount this week. So the Sermon on the Mount is a little bit like that speech in Hamlet where Hamlet makes all these references to death and you don't remember it because you had to read it like your junior year of high school. But then if you saw it, you'd be like, I remember that. Oh, I remember that. Oh, I remember that description. The Sermon on the Mount is famous because each teaching is incredibly well said. 2,000 years later, still totally works as what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What do they do and not do? But what's challenging about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus flies up really high and down lower. You know what I mean? So right after the Beatitudes, he says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So followers of Jesus in a culture slowly, over time, pursue justice and peace and neighbor love. And what happens, the culture flourishes. And so from 30,000 feet, you could tell that there are a lot of followers of Jesus in that particular area because it's flourishing. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, build your house on the rock. And by that, he means trust me and follow me and lead a life of life. You could tell if someone's building a house on the rock as opposed to building a house in the sand from about 2,000 feet. Last week on my day off, I climbed that uh, little mountain behind the master school, which is legal. By the way, there's a path and everything. It's right by Saddle Ridge. If any of you live there, I'm sorry to spoil the big secret that there's a gorgeous waterfall. And, and you get about as high as Hubline. You can see across the whole area, so I'm about 2,000 feet up, right? From that vantage point, you could tell the difference between a house built on the rock and a house built on the sand. You're like, oh, it's leaning to the left. I'm going to have to tell him that the whole house is like leaning, and that guy's house is stable. But then the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. Well, that's internal. So salt and light is 30,000 feet. Build your house on the rocks like 2,000 feet. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We can't really tell if someone's poor in spirit, especially in New England, where we're not, you know, showing you here. We'll talk about it, and we still feel our feelings, but... It's not going to be quite as apparent. And I think that can be dizzying to go through because Jesus will talk about how to pray and how, not, and how not to pray. He'll talk about how to give and how not to give. Well, if we were shadowing someone, we could tell that. But in the Beatitudes, in the beautiful description of what it's like internally and externally to be a follower of Christ, we can't tell. And I think that's kind of dizzying. Now, the one we're looking at today, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Maybe we could tell from about five feet away whether someone is a follower of Christ and therefore a peacemaker, but I don't know if we could tell if they're doing it like a follower of Christ does, which means out of love for God and neighbor, because sometimes peacemakers are peacemakers out of condescension and smugness, and really they just want to be all up in everybody's business. They think that's pretty cool, right? Like there's a peacemaker in your family, and sometimes you wonder if it's because they're awesome or because... They just want to know what's going on with everybody. And then they do some peacemaking on the side. Most of the beautiful attitudes, most of Jesus' descriptions of the beautiful way to be in the world are internal. First one is poor in spirit, a knowledge of our need. That's internal. The second one is blessed are those who mourn. That's not about suffering. That's about longing to love well and therefore being sad when we don't. Blessed are the meek. And you're like, what does that mean again? It means strength extended gently. So people can tell over time if we're meek. It's not just 
gentleness. It's strength extended gently. It is not, in fact, weakness. It's almost the entire, the opposite. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful. And then blessed are the peacemakers. When we see blessed are the peacemakers, this would be our strongest temptation, I think, to think that the beautiful ways of being in the world are separate. So like some of us are peacemakers, and others of us are meek, and others of us are poor in spirit, and others of us are pure in heart. No. These build upon one another. They are a description of the internal and the external reality of a follower of Jesus, and they build on one another. What that means is if you're a follower of Jesus, you are being grown in this very moment into a peacemaker. This is not a description of eight or nine personality types, depending on how you count the Beatitudes. This is a description of one human who is following the one human who lived the perfect life, died that all the wrath of God at sin would come down on, that sin might be atoned for, and who then has the Holy Spirit. So these are a description of any one or perhaps group of followers who are following the one who lived that life. So the answer to the question is, what is it like as a human to be salt and light? So salt and light, I think, is the, is the highest flying statement of the Sermon on the Mount, right? So I think it's the most, like, wow, what happens if a bunch of followers of Jesus are in a culture? The culture gets better. It gets closer to justice. It's better at neighbor love. There's peace, which is more than an absence of conflict, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Well, what's it like as an individual if you're a follower of Jesus? What's it like to be salt and light? It means you care about peace and you are becoming a peacemaker. Peace, I said in a minute, actually in like 40 seconds, peace is not the absence of conflict. Though it is that, it is much more than that. It is not less, but it is more than that. You know the Old Testament word for peace, whether you realize it or not. Shalom. New Testament word is irene, and this is not about a ceasing of hostilities, though that's included. This is about the flourishing of the human near you. And this is what's so interesting about the gospel, and so many people miss it about Christianity. Yes, the offer is that in a relationship with Jesus, you're freed from death and sin. And you're given the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's the offer, and that's such sweet news. And it doesn't stop there. You are given agency. You have a role. You know that? I mean, on our bad days, because we can't control anything, we forget that we have a role. The Christian life is not only loved by God, though that is very sweet, Christianity is not only that we're liked by God and because of the work of Christ we're reconciled to him, it's that we have a role of agency in the places we find ourselves in. Which sounds kind of amorphous. You have a family that I don't have and I have one that you don't have. Some of you are retired and you interact with some people. Others of you work vocationally and you interact with those people. All of us live in a neighborhood where we have a role one description of that role is peacemaking, where we are attempting as best we can. No, not attempting. We are trusting the Holy Spirit that we are an agent of shalom, of flourishing peace in that area, 
in that family, in that institution, like this one in the place of your business. Salt and light of the culture are the peacemakers. And there is peace to be made everywhere, isn't there? I have six brothers and sisters, and none of them have ever gotten into an argument. I had a dream that I was talking to my dad about how often we talk on the phone, which is interesting because I don't need to dream that. That happens all the time. He wants to talk a little more often than I'm able to. And we started going through in the conversation all the many points of disorientation in my family. Sometimes I'm vague about that. Dad's been married five times. Mom's been married five times. I have six brothers and sisters. Everyone's scattered. And my personality type is one that wants to give to them as best I can and love them. It's actually impossible. I could not actually call all of my parents and my brothers and sisters on the same day. There's peace to be made everywhere, isn't there? I don't know how much you engage with social media. I know that that's a pure place. That's the exception to the rule. Peace is kept and made there. Everyone's kind, and all of our statements about whatever we're thinking about that day are, are helpful, nourishing. Is that too much? Too much sarcasm. You know people are only sarcastic with people they're comfortable with, right? Which doesn't mean I should be, but it does mean I'm comfortable with you. In our places of business, I was struck this week by another car. You thought I was going to say struck like a metaphor. I was driving south on 202 in Southwick, and I was 45 miles an hour, and I was, I was probably going 48 um, because of the traffic, and there was no stop sign, no stop light. Car pulls right out in front of me, and we collide. And um, I cursed. And then I got out of the car, and I had a moment of clarity. And I said, are you okay, Christopher? Because he had his name tag on. Because he was leaving work, which is probably why he was in a hurry to get out of the parking lot. And I have not always, when in wrecks, said, are you okay? Partially because usually I cause the wreck. This was an exception. But there are opportunities for peace everywhere in the, in, the, in the groups that we'll be part of for our whole life, like our biological family. And then there will be circumstances where we'll have opportunities to be not peacekeepers. That's not the description. Peacemakers. We're not, we don't want everyone to only get along. And this, by the way, is about when the conflict is not with you directly. Direct conflict in relationship we're actually going to talk about when we get when we finish in two weeks with the Sermon on the Mount We're going to talk about forgiveness and then repentance and then reconciliation. That's how relationships with conflict with one another Tell those relationships are put back together and every time I touch on one of those Somebody says I'm not sure that you're right and two or three other people say you should teach at length about that And so for both of those reasons We'll do a series on that after the Sermon on the Mount Peace making are about the places we find ourselves in where we often see conflict near us and we have a role. I told this story a couple of years ago. I was in Hartford and I was stopped because of traffic and there was a guy on a bicycle behind me and he jumped over and he got hit by a car. And he's okay. He didn't, he was, the car wasn't going like 50 or something. Well, then I have a role for about 20, 25 minutes to be one of the people, and I wasn't the only one, to be kind of a peacemaker. Back my car up, turn on my flashers, Ask people if they're okay, and you got to be tricky with guys. Like, you okay? Not like, hey man. You got to be careful about it because he didn't know me. My point is that sometimes it's an old story and institution that we're called to be a peacemaker in, and sometimes it's a random circumstance. And yet, as a follower of Christ, our desire 
is for the shalom of the other person. Is this for every time you see conflict? No. We're trying to assess whether we have a role or not. This is not blessed are the peacemakers for they're all up in everybody's business and they think that's being godly. You have a role in some places and not in others. You have a role in some conversations that's more elevated than others. If it's your brother or sister, that's different than a newer friend or a coworker. If it's your parent, that's different than someone at church that you kind of know, but not very well. If you come upon a conflict and you just jump right in, what's going to happen? Like they're going to either think you're condescending or they're going to get mad at you or... We're assessing whether we have a role. Family's very tricky for me. I, I realized a couple of years ago that in every human's life, I'm either their pastor or a pastor or a person who believes these somewhat crazy things. And the reason that I had to come up with that formulation is I think I have a role with more people than I have a role with. And that comes with all sorts of interesting baggage, perhaps. But it really helps me. So with my family, I'm not their pastor. I'm a pastor. I'm their pastor. With the guys that I play basketball with up at Simsbury High, I'm a guy that believes interesting things. And they love to joke about it. And for the most part, their jokes are funny. This is not about us entering every conflict that we see. This is about us, because of the love of God, seeking the shalom of the neighbors we find ourselves in relationship with. And there are neighbors in your life that trust you. And you have a bigger role with them. You have neighbors in your life that it's circumstantial. And they do not trust you. And so you walk there very carefully. And when I was growing up, this was the point in the sermon where the pastor said, like, God wants you to get out of your comfort zone and be a peacemaker. For some of you are like, I've never heard it preached that way. Well, this is a moment of cultural anthropology for you then. This is the Midwest in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And I think it worked for some people, but I don't like when people talk that way. First of all, any time that we say God wants, it's a little arrogant. Because it's not a human. He's God. And want is such a specific word. One of my pastor friends in our region, Presbytery, calls that anthropopathism. You can look that up. I had to. God has purchased for you the joyful, flourishing with God life. If you're a follower of him. He calls you his own. Because of the work of Christ, you are freed into relationship with him and he's given you the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you have a peacemaking role and sometimes you don't. That's where we seek this out with wisdom, not naively. One thing I've been at pains to attempt to explain in depth is this word, makarioi. You wanted to see a Greek word today, didn't you? That's not in Greek, those are English letters, but that's the word for blessed. The description of a follower of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The word is makarioi. I've been calling it macarism. That's a transliteration. It's designed to throw you off and intrigue you about my incredible rhetoric. And it does not mean that you have been a little bit lucky and God exists. This is a deep and profound and lasting description of a follower of Jesus that knows that they're loved and liked by God, that trusts him with their heart and with their decision, that has given allegiance to him, and therefore they're deeply satisfied. That's a good translation of the word used by a pastor that I am fond of named Tim Keller. 
whole bunch of theologians that I like say flourishing are the peacemakers. Because what's the option when we see conflict? We could be a peacekeeper. That's like the difference between being nice and being kind. Nice people never tell on anybody. Kind people sometimes confront people because it's for their good and our good. Peacekeepers just want it all to be okay so they can go home and go to bed. And peacemakers long for the shalom of those in their life. And therefore, they are a deeply satisfied, flourishing people. That's the offer of the gospel. Jesus is teaching subtly in the Sermon on the Mount because this is his introduction to the world and the world's introduction to him. And so we go to places like John chapter 3 and we understand that the offer is to be born again, to entrust him with our heart and our decisions, with our full allegiance. When we do that, we are transformed internally and then externally into this, a deeply flourishing human who's poor in spirit, who mourns, who extends their strength gently, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, who is merciful and pure in heart, which means single-mindedly devoted, and who is a peacemaker where they find themselves. For they shall be called sons of God. That's the promise. Doesn't it sound like other promises in Scripture? I'll talk about that in just a minute. It's one of the sweetest parts of Scripture explained in Galatians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 8 and other places that a follower of Jesus becomes a, a true daughter or a true son of the true king. Which to those of us that know our need for God is, is about as sweet of a promise as it gets. I love to say that when I serve communion because of the power of the work of Jesus Christ. You're a true daughter of the true king Jesus. This is Jesus beginning to explain that promise that in him we are fully reconciled to God for they shall be called sons of God. What do sons of God look like in relationship? I think they know how to listen. Daughters of God, when they're with a friend, sibling, coworker, I think we know how to listen. There's something I'd really like to share with you, but for complex rhetorical reasons, I can't share it because it'd be a little awkward. But I've been learning about myself as a listener. I will share with you after the sermon, and then you'll laugh, and you'll figure out why I didn't share it during the sermon. But I've been learning how and when and why I don't listen well. Perhaps you're a little bit like me, and when you're listening to someone, you know what you want to say pretty quickly, and so you're just waiting for them to be done telling you so that you can tell them what they need to think, do, pray, be change about their life. That doesn't apply to you guys. That's just, I'm the only one that does that. You're laughing because you're like, yep, I'm a great listener. Congratulations. I'm glad for you. For the six of you that struggle to listen, I want to offer an encouragement as you're listening to a friend to the extent that you believe and understand that you are an agent of God's shalom. Pray as you're listening Lord, where is your shalom in this? And some of you are like, if I'm praying, then I'm not listening. This is only for those of us that already know what we want to say. For those of you that actually listen with, a, with like, you're listening. Good, don't take this prayer on. But for those of us that struggle to listen, because we've heard some version of this story before and we want to help, Lord, where is your shalom in their story? shorter version of that is help just as you're listening help Lord help help me listen 
to them. Because it's not love if we're not listening to them and then offering help. And peace will not be made. Peace might be kept, but it will not be made if we're not listening. I have another question about your peacemakingness. And I'm going to first tell you the bad part of it, of my illustration. Over the last couple of years, I have realized through my mentoring, and mentoring comes from a lot of places, culture, school, family, I have a tendency to make not great jokes. I don't mean they're not funny. I'm very funny. That's not my point. <laughs> I mean, occasionally, the jokes are, are, are gender-related or race-related. And I say that with profound sadness. And for about two years, I've been repenting to the Lord over this and attempting then to not say the jokes out loud and then to ask his forgiveness and ask for him to heal me. And I don't want to make too grand of a statement about things that are media argues about very poorly, such as the the problems in our culture with respect to those things and in other cultures. But I do want to ask you this about being a peacemaker, because you are. Are your jokes helpful? One One of the things I've noticed in pastoral ministry over the years is that one of the most destructive things in a family system are flippant jokes. And you're like, the most destructive things are the big things. Yes, they are. And where we see the big things before they get big is in flippant jokes. And here's the good news. I'll bet you're really funny too, like me. And so I want you to joke. I want the people in your immediate vicinity to laugh with you. And I wonder if your jokes actually make peace or if they cause more trouble in your living room. Maybe not. Maybe you're not like me. That's all right. Blessed are the peacemakers for, peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is a beautiful promise that um, many of the New Testament writers learned to re-say in specific congregations. And all of the power for this description, again, it's not a command. The Beatitudes are not be this attitude. They're this is a beautiful attitude. Where's the power then? You're like, okay, you keep calling me a peacemaker. Where am I going to find the energy or the power for that? Listen to the Apostle Paul's description of it in Galatians chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You're like, what does this have to do with peacemaking? Christians believe that without God, we are without hope and are in fact enslaved to sin and death. This is the Apostle Paul's description of that. Back up in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That certainly includes daughters. Paul just would have assumed that you would know that. I don't know how it sounds to you. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You're a follower of Jesus. You are no longer a slave, but a daughter or son of the true king. And if you are a child, then you are an heir. Then you receive the power for this. 
salt and light of the culture are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons and daughters of the true king, bringing the king's shalom everywhere with them and offering it humbly, not because we're so great at conflict resolution, but because of the love of God revealed in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we learn to be peacemakers, not keepers. We learn to listen well. We watch out for our forms of sarcasm and joking. Though we find conflict everywhere. And I want to, I did this last week, um, and I'm going to do this again. Some of you are thinking about the times that you have avoided conflict, because we find conflict everywhere, don't we? In our families, in the institutions we either work with or attend church in. Yep, a lot of conflict here. So what do we do? We attempt to peacemake in it because of the Holy Spirit. But the reason that you've avoided conflict is because you are tired. That's the fatigue of this world. That's the fatigue of the in-between time that Jesus has come and shared with us his sweet good news about reconciliation to God and how to love neighbor well. And yet, there is conflict everywhere. I have friends that do not come to church on Mother's Day because of how poorly churches know how to interact with the very challenging reality of that in it in the world. And some of you are very confused by that. It's a very challenging day for some people. Some of you appreciate that I said that, but you kind of wish I would have said nothing. I'm sorry, it's a hard day. I appreciate Hallmark sometimes. <laughs> so the reason that we have avoided conflict is legitimate. And you are drawn into the with God life where when we have influence, we're peacemakers. You know that you're given some power, right? And you were like, I don't have any power. And the reason you don't think you have any power is you don't have any control. Let's just all realize that together. We don't have any control over any of the people or the institutions around us. But you have been given immense power. Immense, immense power. As a human being, you have words and hands. You don't have any time, but you make use of time. Time's not yours. It keeps going, right? Of resources. You've been given immense power, and that power is for the glory of God, the good of neighbor, and of course you're included in that, but it's that order. The reason that you have resisted is either one or some combo of the fear and the shame and the anger that we end up piling up in our being throughout life because there's a lot of scary stuff out there because we've done things that we're ashamed of, because people make us angry. So it's legitimate. And the reason I keep saying that is not because I think that you think it's illegitimate, because when we realize it's legitimate, we see how sweet the good news of Jesus is. That we're not only loved by God and forgiven and atoned for because of the work of Christ, but the Holy Spirit not only gives peace to our hearts, which is such a sweet promise. The Holy Spirit gives peace to our hearts and then calls us agents 
of God's shalom. And even in those moments where we recognize that we're being healed of our illegitimate fear and shame and anger. The sweetness of the with God life is that we are reconciled to God because of his pursuing love and the work of Christ and then we're sent into the world because peace and a deep satisfaction has been given to us and we make peace when and where we can. Pray with me. Father in heaven, there is conflict all around us. Conflict of arguments, conflict within our institutions, conflict within our families. We desperately need your peace deep in our hearts. And then the affirmation and guidance of the Holy Spirit that you have turned us into and are turning us into peacemakers. Father, I ask that for those of us that believe in your good news, would you help us to believe more deeply and sense the embrace of the Holy Spirit. And for those that are considering the good news of Jesus, would you help them as they consider the offer of life? Amen.